wonderful psalm of the sovereignty of God. Turn with me to John chapter 11 for our New Testament reading and the portion we'll be considering this morning as we resume our series in John. John chapter 11. For those who have been here, you know that a few weeks ago we wrapped up a a little uh, multiple series on Lazarus and the resurrection. And uh, we noted then that this was the last of the miracles that our Lord did preceding his own resurrection, his own death and burial and resurrection. And how appropriate it was then for the last one to be foretelling of what he was about to go through and what he would do as he would raise Lazarus so he would raise himself just a few days hence. Let's read, beginning in verse 45. This is after Lazarus' resurrection. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the nation, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And from there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, He should let them know so that they might arrest him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Father, thank you for the trustworthiness of your word. That you have spoken, that you have spoken clearly, and this this morning may we rejoice in the work of of your spirit in our midst. As the Lord gave Moses a successor, a man who was full of the spirit, Joshua. 
you also gave the world a man who was full of the Spirit, the greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see him here at work. And we know that he wasn't just at work then, but he has continued to be at work through the Spirit. And even to this day, may we rejoice when we leave this place to know that he's been at work in our hearts. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In this uh, world of secular things, it's not uncommon for people to be indifferent to various people, places, events. You ask as many people as you'd like about American football. I say American football because we forget sometimes that there's another kind of football that's played around the world that's not really football, but, you know, we try to be nice about it. Ask as many people as you care to ask what they think about American football or baseball. You pick a sport and you'll get about as many answers. Usually they're either fanatical about it or they really think it's demonic or they just don't care. And most wives are in the don't care category. You know, you meet a wife every once in a while who goes to their husband to the football games or baseball games just for the outing, not for the sport. They don't really care. They may like the colors that they wear, but they don't care about what's going on in the field. That's the secular. But when it comes, when it comes to the sacred, and you're talking about God, the triune God, there is no indifference. There's no place for indifference. I realize you may run into an agnostic who says they really don't know and don't care. But you know also Romans chapter 1. And you also know Romans chapter 2. And you know that they're suppressing the truth. And the whole time they're suppressing the truth about God, the law is in, in their hearts at work to either commend them or convict them, condemning them of the way they're speaking of God. And so there is no one that's really neutral when it comes to God. There's certainly no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. And the reason for that is, just as we saw back in our numbers reading, and as we've just been singing about from Psalm 135, and as we just read about in here, Jesus is sovereign. He's in control of everything. So you can't be indifferent about the one who's controlling everything. In fact, Jesus said it this way, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. That's rather definitive, isn't it? So I'm going to go ahead and ask you, 
And you all know people who are nominal Christians. They say they believe in Jesus, but they're not here today. So they're not for Jesus. You say, well, maybe they're traveling and they're in, well, okay, I'm talking about those that say they believe in Jesus, say, yes, I believe the Bible, and then they're indifferent to church life. They're indifferent to worship. They're indifferent to, oh, I don't really get caught up in doctrine. You know, doctrine divides. We just want to love, love, love. You know, like the Beatles said. Yeah, you really want to quote John Lennon, don't you? Who knows better now? I'm talking about those kind of people who say on the one hand, I believe, and on the other hand, I'm all about self. Jesus says, you're either with me or you're against me. And when Jesus said you're with me, if you're either with me, he meant all in. You know, in the united to Christ thing, the union with Christ thing, putting to death, giving life to putting off all those things that keep us from holiness, putting on those things that, 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 that produce holiness in our lives. Well, you say, so what's that got to do with this passage? Well, it's got everything to do with this passage. Because here what John does after he finishes this remarkable last miracle, this capstone miracle that Jesus performed, he then paints this, this picture of what Jesus said in Matthew 12. You're either with me or you're against me. You're for me or you're against me. He paints a picture right here. It's sort of an afterward to the miracle. And it begins with him showing how people respond to who he is and what he does. And you've, you've got two people here. I'll say that right up front, and then we're going to look at them. You've got two people, two responses. These are only two people, only two responses that exist on the face of the earth. I don't care how many shades of gray people think there may be or that they think there's a neutrality zone somewhere in the realm of the secular. So, therefore, there must be a neutral zone in the sacred. We don't care about what they think. We care about what God says. And what John paints for us here is that there's two people, those who believe and those who don't, those who are for God and those who are against God. That's it. Period. So let's look at that. The reaction to the attesting miracles. Some believed. You see it right there in verse 45. Many. And by the way, it's, it's, it's many. Aren't you encouraged by that? Now you see what it says? Many of the Jews, therefore... Therefore, what's the therefore for? Well, the therefore is there about what Jesus has been saying and what Jesus has just done. Many of them believed, but some of them went to the Pharisees. In other words, many believed, some didn't. Now, just pause there for a moment and contrast many and some. If many of you got up and left right now, 
That would mean most of you did. And fewer number would stay. I should have said that the other way around. I would have felt better about myself. But you get the point. We get it here. The many are those who believed. You know, people paint us Calvinists as, well, just frozen chosen, just this little handful of people, just a select group. They're all the special ones. We don't believe that at all. We don't know where that lie came from except the pit of hell. But we've never believed that. We've always believed that the numbers are beyond counting that God has ordained from eternity past to believe. And that should thrill your soul. But that's not the sermon. That's not really John's point here. John's point is that many believed, and that's one of the reactions. Calvin says succinctly that the word believe here cannot mean anything else but that they embraced the doctrine of Christ. They embraced his person and his work. This is, this is what I believe. This is who I believe in. This is what I'm going to follow, Jesus Christ. Lead on, O King Eternal. That's who I am. But some didn't. Now the question. They've just seen the same things. They've been hearing the same person. The same words have been coming into their ears. Why did many believe and some not? Well, if you've been around here long, all you children could answer that question. It's the Holy Spirit, right? Those who are going through the communicants class right now, I happen to have overheard one day just recently. And I know that you have already heard at least once, because I've heard it at least once, in the hallway out here. The reason you believe and others do not believe is because the spirit of the living God has changed your heart. Has given you a heart of flesh that's pulsing with faith and repentance and taken away a heart that's hard and cold and stony. That's the difference here. Isn't it interesting? When you think through these things, various passages, tonight be similar if, if, if I end up being the preacher tonight. I'm going to show you this very same thing again. You say, but wait a minute. The Holy Spirit's not even mentioned in this passage. Yes, he is. Because the Holy Spirit is the only answer to the riddle. Why did many believe and why did some not believe? Because they were all dead in trespasses and sins. That's what the Bible says. There's none who seek righteousness. None who want to know God. None who understand. And Paul has to remind us too because we're proud, aren't we? If Paul hadn't said, if Paul hadn't said with the psalmist, none, and then added not even one, there would have been one at least in this room and in every room that would have said, oh, but I do. I could. 
I can. But Paul makes the point with the psalmist, none. Why? Because all are dead. All are by nature children of wrath. The only thing that's the difference between the many and the some is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's right in the middle of this doing his work or else that wouldn't be the case. There'd be no differentiation. So some didn't believe. Some didn't have the Spirit working, regenerating their hearts that they might hear what Jesus said and see what Jesus saw, did and would be saved. They would believe in him. But you notice what some did. Some went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now let me say this again. There may even be someone sitting here, perhaps someone listening, watching on streaming, and they say, well, you know, that all sounds pretty radical. I, I'm not against Jesus. I'm just simply not interested. Well, I want to say this. If you're not interested in Jesus, if you're bored right now with this sermon, don't blame me. Blame your cold heart. If you're not interested, then you're against Christ. They were against Christ. The fact that some believed and they followed him spurred the religious leaders to harden their hearts even more so. We see that in the next few verses, 47 and following. We see there the point I've made in the outline is the ridiculousness. I had to look that up to be sure it was a real word because it just sounds strange, doesn't it? The ridiculousness, and it's hard to say too, of recalcitrant men. These men's hearts are hard. They're calcified. Notice what it says. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council, that's Sanhedrin, and said, What are we to do? This man performs many, miracles, many signs. rather. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Think about this. These are the men trained in the scriptures, memorized the Torah, knew all the prophets said, all the wisdom literature, And they knew nothing. They missed the Messiah. Children, listen to me. Listen closely. You can sit in the Sunday school classes here, and they're good. You can come to catechism class on Wednesday nights. You can listen to the preaching from the pulpit, and you can hear all this and know all this and miss Jesus. And grow up unconverted, unsaved, lost against Christ. And by the way, you can do all that and be pretty cool, pretty nice, pretty good, but lost and without hope. The first set of recalcitrant men are those who witnessed the miracle, ran off to the Pharisees. Calvin says this about them. In those who accuse Christ, we behold detestable ingratitude, or rather, 
horrible rage from which we infer how blind and mad is their impiety. They heard all the same things. They saw all the same acts of God. And yet they are outraged and they go and they tell because their hearts have not changed. For a miracle to warm and attract a person, their heart must be renewed by the Spirit of God. That's the difference here again between these two categories of men and women. You've got it obvious in verse 45. You've got it equally obvious in the, in the following verses, the ones we're reading now. Some had no work of God in their life, and so what God did, what God said, didn't mean anything to them, except it made them mad, and they didn't like it, and they turned against him even more so. We have to be careful that we don't let the word of God harden our hearts, that we don't let the wonderful providences of God that we observe in all of creation harden our hearts, that we don't let the beautiful creation that surrounds us harden our hearts. Now, I'm going to tiptoe out on a limb right here, but it's a strong limb and it can hold me. You say, well, I, 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 you know, I really hadn't noticed the creation. That might be a telltale sign that your, your heart's not where it ought to be. If you don't observe the beautiful sunsets, you don't observe, if you're an early, early bird, the beautiful sunrises. If you don't observe the beautiful landscape, the trees, the different shades of green that are out there right now. You do know that the Lord of glory does all that. That's as much his handiwork, his providential sustaining of all things, as this miracle Jesus did to raise Lazarus. That's not a miracle out there, but it's a providential work of God. And his providences and his, his, his miracles all should get our attention and should, should take hold of us. And they should result in the same thing for the regenerate person, and that is awe. We should be wowed by it. It takes the same power of God to sustain that creation as it does to save your soul. The same resurrection power. Every fall, the leaf, every, every, every year the leaves fall off the tree and every spring they come back. Resurrection power at work in creation. So don't let those things pass your attention without praising God for it and thanking God for it. I know we have some folks in here who love to hike in the mountains. And if you just love to hike or run in the mountains for the sake of hiking or running, there's something wrong with you. You should enjoy the hiking and the running in the mountains for the sake of the mountains that God has placed there. And be thankful for the knees and the hips that help you run and walk through the mountains. But praise him for it. It's just ridiculous, isn't it? How they rebel. 
If they had not been exceedingly stupid and brutish, one commentator says, they would have at least have been impressed with some reverence for Christ and his demonstration of divine power. If they hadn't been so dead in their sins, they would have been at least impressed. Well, you and I experience that sort of thing daily almost. We'll see something happen. It may not be anyone we particularly care for. We see it happen. We see them able to do that. And we're like, wow, that's pretty impressive. I can't do that. Maybe someone that's as lost as a ball in high weeds doing it. But what they did is impressive. I see athletes do things. I don't even dream about those kind of things. And these men see something that only God could do. And instead of being impressed, they were, they were maddened. Why? Well, let's read on. Let's read on what happens here. So the chief priests, Pharisees, gathered the council, said, what are we to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, others will believe. And the Romans will come. And if the Romans come into town, they will take away both our place and our nation. That's what their concern was about. It was all about themselves, wasn't it? Is about them having their little fiefdom, their little kingdom right there. And by the way, did you notice? Our nation. These are Jews. These are Hebrews. A good Hebrew, even a secular Hebrew, would have told you the story of Abraham and how that God created this people of God, this national entity. They weren't a nation, and God made them a nation. But it's theirs. Now, time out before we get too hard on the Hebrews. You know, if we do that, we might lose our church. If we do that, we might lose our Sunday school class. We don't want to grow too much. We might have to lose our this or our that. Now, we can become just as selfish and self-centered as these Pharisees did. So let's be careful about this. It's easy to point the fingers, and we should, but we need to learn from them how easy it is for us to own things that are God's. It's all his, y'all. Their place in the Hebrew culture, their place in their nation, their place was because God put them there. Not because of who they were. Again, this past week at General Assembly, I, I had the wonderful opportunity one more time to say, you know, when I asked, how are things at Covenant? How are things? I'd say, well, you know what? They don't need me. It's, it's just wonderful. We had a lengthy discussion, some of us, one afternoon 
about what a better way for us to do our general assemblies would be. And I frankly think the way we do them is pathetic. And everyone who knows me knows I think that. I'm not telling you anything secret. Here's why there's such a, a large, unwieldy thing where we can't hardly do anything and discuss it. It's because everyone feels like they should be there. Here's the thing. I'm dispensable. And every church, by the way, every Presbyterian body in the history of mankind has understood that except us. And so they delegate men to go instead of everyone having the opportunity to go. So they have the delegates from presbyteries who go and represent. And it's a smaller group and they can do more work in a, in a better time frame. Why? Because I'm not necessary. That was their problem. They thought they were necessary. They thought they were essential. It's God who put them in their place. It's God who put the nation there. And they've lost that concept altogether. Altogether, it's gone. Let me tell you something. If you want first place, you're going to lose. Because God won't share. Now I want to ask you something. Who lost? They're going to try to kill Jesus. And ultimately they think they get their way because he goes to the cross and he dies. But they lost. And they lost eternally. Not just temporally. They lost eternally. Because they rejected Jesus Christ on his terms. They would have been thrilled to have Jesus Christ on their terms. But you can't have Jesus on your terms, folks. We have to have Jesus on his terms, and he is the sovereign. He is the Lord. He is the Savior. He is the King. And unless we submit to that, and unless our faith is based on that, we have no part in him. And these men had no part in him. Now, notice in the middle of this, though. In the middle of all this mess, in the middle of all this strangeness, we read about this fellow Caiaphas. Now, this is a unique time in Jewish history. They had, they had set up a term limit on high priest. And so every year, uh, somebody could buy, buy the priesthood. It was a bought position. He had bought it. He was the, he was the high priest for a year. You can't go back in the Old Testament and find that, by the way. They were priests for life. Until God, according to God's setting, the ages, etc. So we had this high priest for this year. And he says, y'all don't know anything. Now he's one of them. He must have sounded really bold to them because he was on their side. 
And all of a sudden out of his mouth comes this something that he didn't really mean to say. He hadn't thought it. You say, how do you know that? Well, because it says so. Verse 51, he didn't say this of his own accord. Y'all, listen, God took over. God took control of Caiaphas, who was one of them. He was not one of the many who had been saved. He was one of them, one of this group who was against Jesus. And all of a sudden, he says stuff, and he's like, whoa, where did that come from? Go on. What else did he say? You don't know anything, nor do you understand it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He didn't say this his own accord. In other words, he, 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 he didn't know what he was talking about. He didn't know where this came from. God had, had just taken over this man. And he's talking. He's prophesying because he's the high priest. He's, he's giving this great statement. He didn't say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied Jesus would die for the nation, not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. They didn't believe that about Jesus. But that's what Jesus came to do. And all of a sudden, one of their own kind is, is saying something that he doesn't know and doesn't really believe. Yeah, are you starting to get it? God is sovereign. Listen, folks. We're God's people. We're his spokesman. The scriptures tell us, Paul tells us, that we are living letters of Jesus Christ. He's written all over us. People can read us like a book. But if we cover up that which is written, and we put the bushel over the lamp, and we obscure, God's still going to get his message out. He spoke through a donkey in the Old Testament, and he just made a donkey out of Caiaphas. And Caiaphas tells all this good stuff about Jesus and what he's going to do, and these I, I would love to have been a fly on the wall after this happened to see what they had to say because John didn't care to record it. He's not only going to die for the nation, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. That's you and me. We're included in that. Do you understand that? When Caiaphas spoke... He talked about us, and he didn't understand it. He didn't even know it because he didn't speak of his own accord. Notice what their response was. So, verse 53 says, from that day on they made plans to put him to death. It's amazing, isn't it? That the Son of God who came to this earth to save sinners could become the object of scorn and ridicule and hatred and people would want to kill him instead of love him. He'd want to save you from a life of misery and an eternity of hell and damnation and you want to kill him. 
Peter picks up on this in Acts, in the great sermon on the day of Pentecost. He says, you, you put him to death. But you did it according to the decree of God. Even when they thought they were doing something, God was using them to do it. God's always in control, y'all. And John wants us to understand that because what's about to happen, the corner he's turning here in this gospel account, is going to lead Jesus to the path of death. And he wants right here, John, writing under this inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wants everybody to know, everyone to be aware what, what's past and what's coming is all under God's control. He's got it under control. So let's, let's just remember this. It's remarkable. What does Jesus do? Well, that's the last point. The ruler over stubborn men, verses 54 and following. They're looking for ways to kill him, and so he just says, you're not going to have a chance. So he no longer walked in their midst until the fullness of time came. Now, here's the one thing I want you to take away from those last verses. Because here, John again is setting the stage, particularly 55 and following, Passover is about to come. Verse 57, now the chief priest and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so they might arrest him. Why? Back up to verse 53, so they might kill him. But in between there, here's the one thing I want you to get. Verses 50, verse 54, actually. Jesus no longer walked openly, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Although the Lord may not be obvious in the world that he's ruling and reigning over, he's always with his people. Don't miss that. It's easy for us sometimes. Things are so out of control and we can almost think, well, God's just kind of backed off. And Christians can say silly things like on the day the Twin Towers were, were crashed into by planes and they came crumpling down. People, silly Christians on radio shows can say things like, my God was nowhere around when that happened. Well, I'm going to tell you, if God was nowhere around, this world would have all collapsed, not just those two buildings. He's always there. He's always in control. He's always guiding and directing. It just may not appear that way to us because we don't see through his eyes the way we should always see through his eyes. But here's something I can tell you. Even though it may not be obvious that God's at work and that God's in control, he's always with us. He was right there with his people. And John wants us to know that. Jesus is always there. He stayed with the disciples. Everyone must respond to Christ as the sovereign Lord for good or bad. There is no place for indifference. There's no place for neutrality. And so the question is, what's your response today? There's no shade of gray, no neutrality with Jesus. You love him and you serve him 
or you hate him and you serve yourself. Those are the two options. That's a serious question to ask, isn't it? So where am I? Who am I? Which am I? May the Lord give us all faith that we can leave this building today convinced in our hearts that we're all in. That we're his and he is ours and there is nothing else. That we'll be like Peter in that great confession. Lord, where would we go? You are the Lord of life. You're the giver of life. We can go nowhere else. Father, make that our heart this day in Jesus' name. Amen.